Brian. Thank you all for leading us in worship. I don't know how you did that, but uh, thank you for leading us in the reading and that prayer. Whenever we hear these verses read, I think for some of us, we're, the thought that comes into our mind is, uh, who's getting married this week? You know, um, Where's the bride? And where's the wedding going to be? Uh, because probably there's no passage of scripture that's more associated with weddings than this one. First um, Corinthians 13, you will often hear read. And I, I'll just say, this is a beautiful text to read at a wedding. Um, this is a beautiful picture of what, uh, a, a beautiful definition uh, of what love really is. Perhaps no better definition of love has ever been given than uh, the words that are written in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, but I, I do want to say today that Paul didn't write this about marriages. Uh, he wrote this to disciples. He wrote this to a church, um, a particular church that was des- that desperately wanted a greater measure of the Spirit. And yet they were looking in all the wrong places for where to find it or how to receive it. Um, For that reason, Paul wrote these words to the church at Corinth. Um, We've, over the past few weeks, uh, I have given a couple of sermons focused on um, following the lead of the Spirit and following in uh, the the, the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life. And and what I would like to do over the next few months is, uh, is take some time each month to, uh, to just reflect on what are the real signs of a spirit-led life? How do I know if it's really the Holy Spirit who's leading me? How do I know if I'm really following in the Spirit's footsteps? Uh, and in Galatians 5, Paul mentions nine fruits of the Spirit-led life. Um, and over the course of the rest of the year, I hope to explore these uh, with you guys one by one. Because we as a church, we desperately want to be a spirit-filled church. We desperately want to be a people who are led by the Holy Spirit, who are disciples following the Spirit's lead. And thankfully, thankfully, the Spirit doesn't leave us in the dark about this. The Spirit shows us how to be led by him, how to follow in his steps, how to uh, keep in step with the Spirit. And that's what I'd like for us to, to explore together. And so today, in this lesson, we're going to look at the first real sign of a spirit-led life, and that is love. Um, I don't know why Paul put love at the, at the first in the list, um, but I think it could be because that's of first importance when it comes to uh, producing spiritual fruit. Uh, if we do not have love, we are missing it all. And so today, I'd like to, for us to think for a few minutes about uh, three things. First, why is love essential to the spirit-led life? Uh, why is love so critical for the Christian to have a, a, a life led by the spirit? Um, and then secondly, we're going to look at what is love? And, uh, and then finally, how do we learn to love? Um, how do we learn to have this kind of love that God is calling us to? So first, let's talk a little bit about um, why love is so essential to a spirit-led life. Why does it matter? Well, Paul really like drills that hard here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the first three verses. 
Um, look again at verse 1 and 2. I, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move even mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. Those are some really strong words there from the Apostle Paul. And I just want you to notice here that Paul is um, speaking about the importance of gifts and the role that spiritual gifts play in the assembly of God's people. But in the middle of this discussion, Paul stops to say that actually gifts without love are empty. And I'll just add this, that in Scripture, far more emphasis is given to the fruit of the Spirit than to the gifts of the Spirit. Uh -huh. Far more important to God uh, than the gifts that we may have is the fruit that we produce. Uh, I believe that is intentional. I believe that it is intentional that God gives priority in the scripture to talking about the fruit that the spirit produces in our life. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is telling us why. And I think this is really countercultural for us. Um, maybe in some ways that might not be obvious to us at first glance, but but think about this with me. Um, in, in our society, uh, you know, we love love, right? I mean, every who doesn't love love? Uh, that's like the word that we use to talk about everything. But and, and I would say we give all kinds of lip service to the idea of love. Like, yeah, like we should all be about love. We should all love one another. We should all love our neighbors. We should all love our community. We should love each other even when we disagree. But let me just suggest this, that actually in our society, in our culture, what matters is not truly love. What matters is what you can produce, what you can actually achieve, what you can actually uh, accomplish. It's how talented you are. It's how gifted you are. That is what we really prize and what we really treasure. I mean, if you don't believe me, just look at how uh, people determine who they're going to hire for jobs. They're not looking at who's the most loving person that we interviewed. Who's the most giving person? Who's the most sacrificial, ser servant-hearted person? Uh, that's the one we want to give the job to. That's not how it works. Who's the most gifted? Who has the best resume? Who's accomplished the greatest thing? Who has the most talent and the most ability to accomplish great things for our company? That's how we determine uh, who is really going to be chosen. We live in a society that's driven by gifts and driven by talents and a desire for those things. And for this reason, actually, it's good news to read this, what Paul is saying, uh, because according to Paul, greatness is not determined by how much you can produce. It's not determined by how great your accomplishments are. It's not determined by how talented and how gifted you are. If it was, then some people would have a much easier time to be great than others. But actually, according to Scripture and according to God, greatness is determined not by any of these things, but by how we love. And I want us to think about that. I mean, I'm not saying anything to you today that you haven't already heard or thought about before. But sometimes reminders are needed. And I want you to think about uh, some of the things that Jesus said to people in Scripture. Uh, people who loved God, so they thought. Um, they hated things that were evil. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation? I know you hate the things that I hate. I know you hate the deeds of neglation. 
I mean, we were talking about in, in the study over the last couple of weeks, part of uh, being a living holy sacrifice is abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. The Ephesians had that. He said, I know your works. Then you're doing all kinds of good things. You people see you, and if people walk into your church, they say, wow, look at this church of God. Look at this church of Jesus Christ. Look at how faithful this church is from all outside appearances. But he said, I have this against you. You left your first love. What do you think about that? It's possible to hate evil and yet not love God. It's possible to be devoted to good works. It's possible to be learning and knowing and gaining in wisdom and knowledge and discernment and yet to not actually love God. And I want to tell you, that's the greatest travesty of all. It's possible for religious people, for Christians to come together from this day forth to the day that we die and yet not possess love. And there's no greater tra travesty in this world than that. God is telling us that all of our gifts and all of our talents and all of our accomplishments and all that we produce, no matter how great it may be in the eyes of man, it is not great in the eyes of God unless it is rooted in love. Gifts without love are em empty. Well, why is love essential? First, because gifts without love are empty. But secondly, also because sacrifice apart from love gains nothing. Look again at verse 3 where he says, if I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Sacrifice apart from love gains nothing. You might say, though, how could somebody how could somebody give all their possessions to their poor and not, and not be loved? How could somebody give their body over to be burned and yet not be full, uh, full of love? How could, you go, how could you go through such hardship, make such sacrifice and not have love? I don't really know how we do that, but we do. I was reading a story this week um, about a man who started this very successful organization that did a whole lot for poor people across the world. Um, the story was about the founder who believed that God's workers, this is the way he said it, should burn out, not rust out. The idea was that God's workers should be working so hard that they burn out, they don't, they don't end up rusting out. And so this man traveled all over the world, 10 months out of the year, finding poor people who were in need and, and giving incredibly sacrificially, both of his own and from the organization, it's sacrificially giving the people who, who, who needed it the most. But as he did so, his family suffered. He often would leave his children behind. Eventually, his daughter, uh, the story is told of his daughter, tried to call him one time and say, Daddy, I need you to come home. To which he refused, but his, her mother did come home, but not before she had attempted suicide. And then a few months later, she attempted it again and was successful. And after that, he ended up legally separating from his wife. And his mind was left in shambles until the end. That's a really, really sad, tragic story. Somebody who gave their entire life, sacrificial, but struggled to learn how to truly love. And that should be a sobering thought for us. When I, read, when I was reading this story, right after reading the story, I looked up in my house and I was just thinking about the story. And I saw a sign that Lindsay had hung. You know, my wife is the uh, queen of hearts, so she has her Valentine's Day stuff up. And it said, uh, the, the sign said, um, love dwells here. Love dwells here. And I began to ask myself, is that true? Does love dwell here? 
It's not as simple as saying like, do we do sacrificial things? Like, do I give? Do I take care of people in need? Do I, do I, um, do I, am I, am I a giving person? Am I financially generous? Am I giving of my time? It's not as simple as that. Love is deeper than that. I can sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and give and serve and serve and yet not have love. Does love dwell here? I pray that it does. And I believe that it does by the, with the help of God. But this is important because God's definition of what matters is pretty straightforward. Our lives are measured by how we love. And I want you, I want to tell you this. This is, this is so critical, even though it's so obvious. Nothing we do in this life will matter unless it is about loving God and loving people. Nothing we do in this life will matter in the end. Unless it is about loving God and loving the people he's made in his image. There's nothing more important than that. Skip down to the end of the chapter, and I want to give you one more reason why love is essential to a spirit-led life. And that is because of, all, of so many other qualities that God calls us to have, so many other things that God tells us to possess, things like faith and hope and knowledge and, 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 and many of these gifts. All of those things eventually are going to be done away with. What's the one thing that will endure? It's love. Love endures till the end. Love is, love is what endures till the end. And if you think about it, why is Paul saying this to this particular church at this particular moment? Today in the evening, we're going to be looking at uh, the Corinthian church. Well, one of the reasons is because this was a church that was filled with division. This is a church where people were fighting because they were arrogant, because they were selfish, because they were self-absorbed. And notice that Paul's recipe for unity is not, hey, you need more gifts. You need more tongue speak, people that can speak in tongues. You need more people that can prophesy. What they needed above all of that was pure and unadulterated, unhypocritical love. They needed to learn to love one another. Why? Well, all these gifts are eventually going to be done away with. And when all the gifts would subside and when all the gifts would pass away, the one thing that would endure would be love. And why is that? Well, that's because God, at his core, at his essence, is a God of love. God has always been love. From the beginning, in the beginning, God is love. And now God is love, and God will forever be love. So when everything on earth passes away, even after faith and hope pass away, the one thing that remains, the one thing that will always remain, even when hope and faith are no longer needed, is love. Love still remains. So if we desperately need love, and if we desperately need to learn how to love, then, how, then, then, then what is it? What is it exactly? If it's, not just, if it's not just sacrificing, if it's not just serving, if it's not just doing good for the poor, if it's not just uh, speaking in tongues or, or um, having the gift of prophecy, if it's not knowledge and faith, if all these things are not in and of themselves love, then what is love? And I'll tell you, there's a struggle to define it. Uh, as the Trini singer Hathaway said, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. I don't know. If, uh, it seemed like he was struggling with finding out the definition, too. Um, but as much as we talk about it, truly, um, love is hard for us to actually comprehend. It's hard for us to understand, in part because in English, at least, the word is, is overworked. Um, in fact, if you go read a dictionary, I read one dictionary, had 28 different definitions for love. 28. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, for example, we love each other, right? And we love God. 
but we also love uh, our fried chicken. We love our um, our jollof rice and our patalitos and um, and all those types of food. Apparently, putting each other in the same category as foods that we love. Uh, we love playing music. We love Jesus. Apparently, putting them on equal categories. In Greek, they actually had a few different words for love. The one that Paul is using here is the word agape. Um, and this particular word agape is, is uh, interesting because in our culture, when we say I love something, what we often mean by that, what we often are, are saying is, uh, it, is it, we speak of love as a feeling. Like I feel something for this. Um, we mean I feel love for you. But when the Bible speaks of love, it's not usually talking primarily about feelings, um, especially when the Bible uses this particular word, agape. When the Bible speaks of agape love, it's not usually simply talking about a feeling. God so loved the world that he gave. His love was primarily active, not emotional. I don't know that God was, uh, you know, particularly fond of what his love would actually cost him when Jesus went to the cross. And yet he gave. And I think this is important for us to think about. Love is, you might say it this way, love is the fertilizer that helps grow and produces all other fruit of the spirit. Uh, this is such a hard word to define, but one of the most helpful definitions to me of this word agape love is that love is a, agape love is a consistent choice to do what is best for the ones we love. Agape love is a consistent choice to do what is best for the ones we love. Let me try to unpack that a little bit um, by just building off of what Paul says in verses four to seven here. If you look at this list again, let me read it um, again just one more time for us. Verses four through seven. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. When you look at that scripture and you look at all the things that love is here, um, there's a few things that stand out to me. First, um, this agape love, love prefers. And love chooses to prefer others over self. That's pretty evident here. Um, for example, love does not envy. Well, what is envy? One of those deeds of the flesh that Paul said, hey, we're supposed to put off and put away when we're putting on this fruit of the spirit. But what is envy? Envy is preferring myself over other people. I want what you got so I can feel better about me than about you. Right? It's preferring me over you. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast. Well, what is boasting about? Boasting is about preferring self and showing just how great self is, particularly as we compare ourselves to others, right? That's what boasting is about. Look at what I've done. Look at how it compares to you and you and you. Um, love does not boast. It doesn't dishonor others. Why? Because love prefers others to be honored even over self. Love gives preference to the needs and desires of others. It's not uh, self-seeking. Love prefers the well-being of others, 
even over self. And I'm going to ask you, how are you doing with that? Um, when Paul speaks about uh, love and marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, he says to the husband, hey, you know, no one ever hated their own body, right? You know, we're pretty good about taking care of ourselves. We're pretty good about cherishing our body, nourishing our body, taking care of our body, right? Because it's our body. And his point is, actually, that's what happens in marriage is you become one flesh and one body. So you take care of her as you do yourself. But think about that. That's what love really is in every relationship. That's the kind of love that Paul's calling the Corinthian church to. That's the kind of love that's actually going to hold us together and has held us together through many trials and tribulations over the past year. What keeps us together? Well, it's that decision to prefer one another over self. Imagine if we didn't have that spirit here, we would have broken apart many times over over the past few years, especially through the trials we've been through and the hardships that we've been through. So love chooses to prefer. You also see in this list, though, that love gives. Love gives. For example, um, love is kind. Uh, what is kindness? Kindness, and this is going to come up later on in the year, so I won't spend much time on it, but kindness is not the same thing as niceness. Sometimes we talk about somebody being nice. Um, and, not, and the idea of nice is, is a passive idea. Uh, but kindness is active. It's the active choice to do good because love is generous. Love gives, actively gives. Notice also that love gives protection. That is, love chooses to protect others even at the expense of my own self. Love is choosing, and you think about, um, you think about when tragedies happen, horrific tragedies. Uh, you think about when people are, are, are experiencing them. Oftentimes, you'll see a picture in the movies or something like that of a mother sheltering her child, protecting her child, even as she's getting attacked or hurt or, or beaten or something horrific is happening. She allows, she, she allows the pain and, and, and all of the hardship to hit her, but is protecting the child to try to make sure the child stays safe. That's the idea here. Love protects. Love shields one another. And is willing to uh, to take the blows. Um, love love always gives the benefit of the doubt, right? Uh, we did a whole sermon on that last year, so I spent a whole lot of time on that. But love chooses to trust um, and chooses to believe the best about other people. So love is always giving. And in fact, Jesus takes it a step further because some of us say, "Like, yeah, there's some people here that I do that for." Right. I mean, there's some people here that I really love and I, I would I'm kind to them. I protect them for anything through thick and thin. I'd be there for them. I always give them the benefit of the doubt. But then there's some other people out there. Who like, I don't know if I'd take a bullet for that one. You know, I don't know if I go through it for that one. Um, you know, I don't know if I can if I can be actively kind towards somebody who's been actively unkind to me over and over and over again. To which Jesus says. Love gives to those even who can never repay. Love gives to those even who uh, have nothing to offer in return. Back, let's read that. Luke chapter 6. This is just so important. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Verse 33. If you do good to those who, who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children, you'll be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. You see here, Jesus is raising the stakes for us as the people of God. It's not just about loving the lovables. It's about learning to love the unlovable. It's about learning to love our enemies. Which gets to the third part of this. Love prefers, love gives, and love hurts. Um, another song comes to mind here. The past couple of days I've been preparing for this. There are all kinds of songs just in my head, uh, most of which didn't help me at all to understand what the Bible was teaching about love. <laughs> but love hurts. And you see that here in this text, right? The first thing that he says is literally love suffers long. Love suffers long. We say patient, but love suffers long. Um, Jesus would say, and John would say, love lays down one's life for the ones that it loves. Which essentially is getting us to think about this. Um, love chooses to love not just the ones who are easy to love, but also the ones who have hurt us deeply. Love chooses to do what is best for the people who have often chosen to do the worst toward us. True faith, think about this, true faith is loving a person even after they've hurt you. The real test of my love is how do I treat the people who give me no reason to show them love in return and give me every reason to actually hate them in return? That's where I, the real test of my Christ-like love comes. So I want you to think about this today. I want you to think about, this is going to be hard, but we need to do it. Um, who are the people who have hurt you the most? Who are the people who have hurt your family or your friends the most? Um, or your children? Who are the people who you avoid? Or maybe the people who avoid you? Um, are you willing to reach out to those people? Are you willing to take the initiative to show them kindness? How long are you willing to suffer out of love for them? Have you ever done something for someone who you knew could not repay you for it? And maybe certainly did not deserve to have it done to them. Uh, probably all of us have done that. But let me ask you this. The more important question is, is that the way you live your life? Like, is that your lifestyle? The way you live on a daily basis is you're caring not just for those who care for you, but you're caring for those who have nothing to offer you in return. And many of whom who have hurt you the most in your life. Seeking to love those who can do nothing in return. Christ-like love leads us to go to extremes. What everybody outside would say is an extreme to help others and to do things for others that other people around us would find completely unthinkable. They would find it completely just crazy um, and hard for them to imagine. So if love is the first and the realest sign of the Spirit leading you in your life, then how are you doing Sobering test to ask, right? Um, at least it is for me. Um, how are we doing with that? How is your love? 
Uh, I'll just, I have to say this. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've been around a more constantly loving group of people than this one uh, for as long as I have. Uh, I've been so encouraged and so impressed by the evidence of God's love at work in this group. Um, and I thank God for that. I, I really do. It's been a beautiful thing to watch. Um, but Paul actually had people that he felt like that toward. Um, one of those groups of people was the Thessalonian church, um, which we're reading right now, 1 Thessalonians. Do you remember what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10? He said, now as to the love of the brothers and sisters, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you practice it toward all brothers and sisters who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel still more. That's a, that's a pretty sobering thought, right? All right, so we're working, we're, la we're laboring, we're giving, we're hurting to serve other people. Excel still more. Hurt a little more. Risk a little more. Give a little more. Sacrifice a little more. Wow. What a high calling. What a high standard that God has called us to. But you remember what Jesus said? They won't know that you're my disciples by how much you know, how smart you are, by the sign you got on your building, by what you call yourselves. How will they know that you're my disciples? By your love. By your love. So I want you to take that love test. And take it hard in your heart. And I want us all, each one of us, to sit back and think, like, how, how do I need to grow in this? Who's somebody who I haven't been showing much love to? Who's somebody who's really been hard for me to love and I, and I haven't done a great job with it? What, how can I grow in my love towards this person? Well, how do we do it? Um, that's, you know, like, this is tough. And if it's tough, how do we get there? How do we ever get a love like this? Well, I think Paul shows us the way, even in this text, um, both in Galatians 5 and also in 1 Corinthians 13. But I want to focus especially on 1 Corinthians 13, and uh, we'll allude to some other texts here. Let me just say this before we get into it. Um, we learn to love by being loved. Isn't that true? How do children learn how to love? And what happens to children who don't grow up? experiencing love. Uh, sociologists write about this and speak about this, that if a child is born and put into an environment where the child is not picked up, is not, you know, uh, touched, is not given all that love that a mother would normally give, uh, children like this have a much more difficult time ever learning to love others in return. You see, God designed it this way, that we would learn to love by being loved. And this is important because uh, the spirit-filled life is not, is not a life that is, that is primarily a set of rules that if you do them, then you've got the spirit and there it is. Like, no, the spirit-filled life is God putting his spirit in us and God pouring out his love into our hearts in such a way that we are empowered to love in ways we were never capable of before. And that's what you're seeing here in uh, this text. Love is a power that works in you to completely transform you and to change you. And we learn to love by being loved. The more we see how much we are loved, 
the more we respond with love in return. So before you can truly love like this, like Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13, we must meet a love like this and experience this kind of love. So how do we learn to love? Well, it's through the Spirit. Let me just say that. Uh, Romans 5 and verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In Romans 15 and verse 30, Paul speaks of the love of the Spirit. That is, this is not something that we do on our own, but this is not something that we can just muster up. This is something that God's Spirit empowers us to do when we are filled with the Holy Spirit inside of us. So it's through the Spirit. It's also through love personified. And I want you to come back to 1 Corinthians 13. Did you notice what Paul does in this text? Is that he takes love and he personifies love in this text. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, does not boast. What is Paul doing here? He is pointing out that he is, he is, he is, he is speaking about love as if love is some kind of person. Because again, we learn to love by being loved. And real love only develops when you meet love. Think about this. Even though many of us were loved by our parents or by friends and family, and and many of us have experienced great love in our life, all of us are here. Every one of us is here because we realize that there's something wrong with us. There's something messed up about us. There's something that wasn't right in our life. Even though we experienced all this love, there's something that wasn't right that not, that our mother, our father, that other people who loved us could not fix. We have a need. We have a need for love that only God could fix. And if we know there's something wrong with us, uh, that, that something so wrong with us that no one else can fix, then we need an even greater love. So think about this. When Paul personifies love, he's trying to get us to think here about a person. And, and I often hear people read this and then we say, well, let's kind of insert our name here. You know, Caleb is patient. How does that sound? Ugh. Sometimes, yeah, right? But actually, I think Paul probably has something else in mind too. I do think that's helpful, by the way. I ought to put my name in there and I ought to ask myself, how am I doing with these things? But I can't help but think that Paul had something else in mind when Paul wrote Love Suffers Long. How could he not be thinking about the one who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? When Paul wrote that love keeps no record of wrongs, how could he not be thinking of the one who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. What was finished? What exactly had Jesus completed on the cross? Let me suggest to you that one of the things that was finished was love. On the cross, we see the epitome of God's love. Love was truly accomplished, a love like no other love in history. So how do we learn to love? We look at how deep the Father's love is for us. How do we learn to love? We gaze upon the one who poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And how do we learn to love? We survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Peace died. 
When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul and my life. If I want to learn to love as God has loved, I just have to look at him. I have to fix my eyes on him. And the more I look at him, the more I will learn to become like him and to love as Jesus has loved me. May God help us toward that end. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this scripture. We thank you that you haven't left us in the dark as we desperately desire to be a people filled with your spirit, led by your spirit in every way. We pray, oh God, as we look into your word, that we would uh, not only be hearers of your word, but effective doers of it that you would teach us to love as you have deeply loved us. Lord, may these words not be forgotten quickly. Uh, we are so quick to be forgetful hearers, but Lord, may we become uh, effective doers of these things and put uh, this love into practice, first in our homes, then in our neighborhood, and, in, and among your uh, the family that you have blessed us to be a part of here. Lord, we're so thankful that we have a number of new brothers and sisters coming into this group, uh, wanting to join and be a part of this fellowship. And we pray, God, that we would continue to be a light to the world around us and that, that the world would know that we are your people, that we are children of the Most High by our love. I pray that, oh God, I pray that you produce that spirit, uh, that spiritual fruit within us, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self-control. Help us, O oh God, toward that end. It's through Jesus we pray.